If you're not familiar with Advent, Advent literally means, and this is important, it just means arrival. And literally it means the arrival of something long anticipated. And so the Advent season is something you often see associated with Christmas because Christmas is the celebration of the arrival of the long-anticipated Christ, right? That's pretty obvious. That's what Advent is. And so as we're kind of looking for these next few weeks of Advent, kind of anticipating Christmas morning, which by the way, there's no place you could be that would be better on Christmas morning than worshiping Jesus, okay? So we are going to have church that day. That should go without saying. Uh, we will be here worshiping at the same time uh, on, on that day. So um, that being said, we're on the second Sunday of five that will lead up to that morning. And the second Sunday today, we're going to look at the second sermon or message in our Advent series. Last week, we looked at the first one, and we talked, talked about holding out for a hero. And, and what I meant by that and kind of titling these, this series of messages that is that uh, in that song, Holding Out for a Hero by Bonnie Tyler, the song is about her looking forward and having a man or a heroic figure that is good enough. And she looks around and she says, no man is good enough. She says, where are all the good men gone? Where are all the gods she even turns to? And she says, we need like a, a Hercules. We need a, Hercules is a God man, right? He's, he's God and man produced by Zeus and a human being. We need somebody better than any man because no man is good enough for what she is saying I need. And so what we're going to see in the Bible is that the Bible is full of great heroic figures, but no man was good enough for what humanity needed. We needed a God man. That's why we're looking at this series of holding out for a hero. We have a great need, and that is a great Savior. And Advent is the season of holding out for a hero. Now, last week we looked at Adam, the firstborn of creation, and yet we saw that that title was more appropriately given to Jesus, the firstborn of creation, in Colossians chapter 1, where in Adam all sin and all recipients of a sin nature, in Christ all can be made alive, which is what we just celebrated in baptism. This week, we're going to move on from Adam to a second great figure, a heroic figure in the Old Testament, and that's a man called Abraham. Abraham is the great biblical patriarch. He is the father, right? The father Abraham. Who was he? Well, aside from Moses, and this is pretty interesting to me, aside from Moses, no Old Testament figure is mentioned more in the New Testament than Abraham. This guy is pretty popular, and very popular especially in the Jewish faith. James, the New Testament author and brother of Jesus, refers to Abraham as God's friend. By the way, that is a title used of no one else in Scripture, a friend of God, a major, major title that is given to Abraham. But what's most noteworthy of Abraham pertains to perhaps a song that you heard and learned when you were a kid. What is that song? There it is. Okay, we stop, okay, we stop it. <laughs> Enough. Enough. That's right, a song maybe you heard in vacation Bible school, or maybe you don't know the song. It goes, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Now, th that's a kind of a fun jingle. We maybe don't do a very good job of actually explaining what that means. <laughs> that means that Abraham is a father of many sons. You may think, does that mean that I'm in the lineage of Abraham? Uh, I don't know, maybe, but probably not. Uh, Abraham was named Abram before that. That name Abram means exalted father, but the name Abraham means father of a multitude, and that is what he's most known for in the Jewish faith, but especially as we look even to the New Testament, which we're going to see Believers of all generations, in fact, in Galatians 3, 7, are called children of Abraham, which is funny considering when we first meet this guy, he's 75 years old and childless and married to a woman that can't have children, and yet he's father Abraham. You see a miraculous story coming, right? You should sense that that's where we're headed. These people, us believers, right, children, not because we follow his bloodline, but because we follow his lineage of faith, 
Abraham was the recipient of God's covenant promise. He was the father of Israel. He was the first patriarch. And it goes Abraham and then his son Isaac and even then his son Jacob, whose name would eventually be changed to Israel. And that name's still around, right? Because of Father Abraham. I mean, it's really amazing when you think about it. Take the Bible out of it. Look to the, to the Middle East. It's still there, right? This is the impact of a man named Abraham and a miracle that happened in his life. Abraham's life story is a miracle. But the greatness of Abraham's life was not due to the greatness of Abraham, but the great God who worked miracles in Abraham's life. And as amazing as his life would be, it was to be seen as a gateway, listen, of the greater hero that would come through his lineage, a guy named Jesus. We're going to look at the promise in Genesis 12 now. And then we're going to look to the fuller picture and sort of an explanation of the promise in Galatians chapter 3. So if you want to kind of find both of those, we're going to look at both this morning. But we're going to start in Genesis 12, and later on we'll find ourselves in Genesis 3. Now, as we're about to read this, and you'll see it on the screen behind me, there also is probably a copy of God's Word in the seat rack in front of you. We're very Bible-driven here, and, and this is sort of a topical series. If you're a guest of ours, you may not know this. We usually go through books of the Bible, and we're taking a break from the book of Hebrews and taking on something a little lighter, right? Uh, but this is more of a topical approach that I think is appropriate as we approach the Christmas season. Now, as we read this, I want you to focus on something. I want you to focus on how many times you see God saying he's going to do something, okay? This is the passage of promise. In fact, there are several passages of promise that are given to Abraham. I want you to focus on God saying all the things he will do. I will, I will, I will. Look at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, again, would be Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all you, and you all, the families of the earth shall be blessed. <clears throat> Abram or Abraham's story begins with the promise of favor, right? Bless, favor from a faithful God in an overwhelmingly faithless time. There aren't a lot of chapters before the one that we're looking at this morning, right? Only 11 of them. And in that limited space of, of reading, there's actually a pretty good space of time, but there's not much to read there because a lot of bad things happen. It's just a lot of bad. I mean, even when you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, the time without sin was short. In Genesis chapter 3, which we looked at last week, <clears throat> through Adam, right, and through Eve, sin entered the world. And so we have the fall, the fall from God's favor into God's condemnation. Shortly thereafter, right, we see the murder of, of a man from another man. And then we see in Noah, in Genesis chapter 6, that God flooded the earth. Why? Because it was wicked, right? Because there was nothing redeemable about it. And so God flooded the earth, judged the earth, and then shortly after that, guess what happened? He put a bunch of people on the earth, and then they reproduced, and they multiplied, and they said, hey, let's make a great name for ourselves. Let's not make a great name for God. Let's make it a great name for ourselves. And they built a big tower called the Tower of Babel, right? They built a tower. God told them, by the way, before that, he said, go out and multiply and fill the whole earth. And their response was not to scatter, but to come together. And they said, let's make a great name for ourselves. Literally, they said, let's not fill the earth. <laughs> God said scatter. Let's not scatter. Let's stay here and make a great name for ourselves. And what God did was he scattered them, right? He caused confusion, and then they went out. I say all that to say, Abraham enters into a time where there's a lot of faithlessness, not faithfulness. And yet, all of a sudden, we see this guy named Abram enter the scene. And he is the pioneer 
of what it looks like to be a man of great faith. And so God sees Abraham and says, I'm gonna give you a promise. If you're taking notes today, there's gonna be two primary components to what we're gonna look at this morning. And the first thing is the promise. That is coming favor for the faithful. Coming favor <clears throat> for the faithful. Notice I say it's coming. It's almost like it's an advent, right? Coming favor for the faithful. One of the things you may have noticed when we looked at Genesis 12 just now, those three verses, was the repetition of the word bless. In fact, go look at verses one through three real quick, and we'll read verse one in a second. But just skim that and look at how many times you see the word bless or blessing. It's quite a few, which <clears throat> that's the promise, right? That through Abraham, all people would receive God's blessing. I'm going to give you another word for blessing. What that means is divine favor, right? And I think favor may resonate with us a little bit differently, maybe a little better. What God is saying is through you, Abraham, there's going to be a lot of favor, my favor that's going to be poured out, which is amazing. I'm going to tell you why. Because this is coming right on the heels of the fall, murder, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Isn't it significant that suddenly God says, I'm going to pour out so much favor? You almost expect him to pour out more judgment, right? But he says, actually, I'm going to promise you something, and I'm going to pour out blessing, favor. Genesis 11, right before this in chapter 12, in Genesis 11, verse 28, <coughs> It says, it records that Abraham's father, a guy named Terah, lived in a place called Ur. Go ahead and throw that map up there, if you will. I don't know if you can see that, but that little red dotted line, it stops in the bottom right-hand corner. It's actually, that's the starting point. Uh, and that little place is called Ur. Uh, it's Ur of the Chaldeans, as you may have heard it say. This is an influential city in southern Mesopotamia. It's situated right there on the Euphrates River, about halfway between the head of the Persian Gulf, which you'll see in the southeast down there, and, modern, and the modern-day city of Baghdad, uh, which is in Iraq. So this place is still kind of around, right? So this is a very old part of the world, and Ur, right, before, right between what we know as Baghdad and the head of the Persian Gulf, is where you'd find this place. And it was a big influential city in a big influential place. Look at verse 1. We'll come back to that map in a second. In verse 1 it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country. Again, that's Ur, okay? Go from your country <clears throat> and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is the call, right? He makes a promise even built into the call, but this is the call. Now it says in other parts, we just, we're not going to read them right now, but before this, it says that his father died in Haran. Go ahead and throw that map back up there one more time. If you go from Ur to the northwest, you'll see that it kind of peaks at a top place and then comes back down. And I don't know if you can read that, but it says Haran right there. That's the place where Abram's father uh, died, Terah. That's where he died. And so he's going to join them on this journey after this call, and yet they stopped there. And the Bible says that they settled there and stayed there. And it wasn't until later that things kind of trickled down into what we would know as the land that God was calling him to, the land of Canaan. And you'll see Jerusalem and Jericho and some things that you may recognize up there too. The call, and you can take that map down. The call is to go from your country, it says. Another word would that be your land. It even says your kindred, your father's house, which would be the land of Ur. And God says, by the way, five times in this passage, I will. You go, I will. Five times. You go, I will. What God is calling Abram to, and this is not something... We as 21st century Americans have a hard time kind of putting ourselves in this passage, and that's okay. But I just want you to understand, and maybe just use your imagination... It was a very big deal for God to call Abram away from his home. Here's why. Because what he was really calling him to do wasn't just to take a trip. It wasn't just to go and move houses like we, you would do to another state. He was calling him to abandon not just family, but security. He was calling him to uproot life and go into 
eh, maybe we'll survive, maybe we won't. Leave family, leave security. In their culture, the concept of family meant everything. It meant security, it meant a future. They were very strongly knit together. It was unusual for family members to live even hundreds of miles apart from each other. And this is exactly what God was calling Abraham to do. Before uh, Brooke and I, my wife and I got called into the ministry, or I guess we were called in the ministry, we had not gotten a full-time vocational position yet. Uh, I'd interviewed at a couple of churches, this is many years ago, I'd interviewed for a couple of churches, and we always thought, you know, we'll, we'll move down to the Mississippi area, her family's uh, from Mississippi, mine lives in Alabama, and so we're thinking, you know, all likelihood, maybe we'll use our networking and God will call us to a church in this region. And uh, the first two churches that very seriously pursued me were in Norman, Oklahoma, and Houston, Texas. Uh, that's not exactly Meridian, and it's definitely not exactly Millport, Alabama, where I ended up in my first vocational position, the town of a thousand people. And these two places were very strongly pursuing us, and with that, one of them even flew us out to, to interview and, you know, the whole nine yards, and I, I turned that down because I didn't have a piece about that. But when we were thinking about that, Brooke was, uh, how many months pregnant? Six months pregnant? Seven months? Eight? It was, it was very pregnant, right? <laughs> we were very pregnant with our firstborn. And so we were entering into a world that we had no clue what we were going to do, right? And now suddenly we're thinking, we're going to do it without family, right? We're going to do it in Oklahoma. We're going to do it in Texas. They got no family even close to there, right? And so there was some kind of some concern. Now we were going out and saying, if this is where God calls us, this is where we're going to be. But even for us in a 21st century context where we can get in a car and drive, it was a big deal for us to say, it's going to be hard, right? It's going to be hard for us to go and do these things. And eventually God did not do that. And we were called to a different place where family was somewhat close. But back then, it would not have just been hard. It would have been near impossible. They had no support system, no land, no safety. It was a, simply put, a faith decision to go. It was a faith decision because rationale said you do not go. It's dangerous. It's lethal even. And yet Abram said, well, if we're called to do it, we should go by faith. You know, we're not told anything about the religious life of Abraham and his family prior to his calling, but historically the people of Ur and Haran, by the way, worshipped ancient Babylonian gods. They even worshipped the, the god of the moon. They weren't exactly God-fearers, right, of the god of the Bible. God called Abraham, in other words, out of a pagan culture, and going out on faith, he trusted Yahweh to provide and start anew. Hebrews 11 sort of gives a commentary on this. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. L listen to this last part. And he went out not knowing where he was going. How about that? I can at least Google it and say, well, this is where we're going. Let's check out the, the, the maps, or back in the day, map quest, right? We can see where we're going. He had no clue. God called us to this area. We're just gonna, we're just gonna go and figure it out. We're just gonna trust God. The core message is that there was no human or physical support system if it was going to happen, if it was going to work, who was going to do it? God was going to do it. Look at verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> it says, and I will, this is God continuing to speak, and I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Don't miss that last part. How many of the families? all the families of the earth. Every people from all over the place through you shall be blessed. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation, all the families of the earth. By the way, that is a stunning, and it's easy to read over that and say, yeah, God does great things, doesn't he? It's easy to read over that, but listen, that is a stunning assertion considering Sarai, his wife, was barren. I'm going to make you a great nation? 
Make me a family of one, at least three. He says, no, no, I'm not just going to give you a child. I'm going to make you a great nation. Later on, he would say, you see the dust of the earth? You can't even count all the particles of dirt. That's going to be your family. Look at the stars in the sky. That's how many people are going to come from your family. He doesn't have any kids, and he can't. And yet God says he's going to do something amazing. That'd be like telling someone who's afraid of water and can't swim that they're going to break every Olympic swimming record. It just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? It's stated so that it's unmistakable that God is going to work and that credit can be given to no one else states impossible odds for a praiseworthy payoff. This is what magicians do. Well, I should say magicians do. I used to try my hand at a little bit of card magic. I know, I know. You loved me already, but tame yourself. And I collect playing cards. I just think that they're kind of cool. And any magician knows this. Again, magician knows this, but it's what you're doing is you want to instill that something it can't happen, and then suddenly it does happen. You say, Look at, look at these cards. It's just a regular deck of cards, right? It's almost as if to say, what I'm about to do is really going to blow your mind, right? Magicians do this. Check these handcuffs. These are just standard handcuffs, right? There's no way I can get out of these. And they do that to, to sort of stun some dramatic effect and say, these are impossible odds that I'm up against. Now watch me break out. Now we know that magicians are fooling. They're manipulating. They're tricking, right? And that's part of the gimmick. But when God says it, he's not. What he's doing is he's having these things written down to say, Abraham, you're going on impossible odds so that there's no mistaking the fact who's the hero in the story. And it is not Abraham. It is Abraham's God. Which I think is, is funny to me because if you're going to begin a civilization, a nation, land and people are literally the only two essential components. What do you need to establish a nation? They need a place to be and they need to be. <laughs> land and and people and abram or abraham <clears throat> the irony is that god was calling someone who couldn't multiply to a place where he had nothing to call his own who's going to do something great god is abraham no no god is going to do something great he says i'm going to make your name great by the way notice the contrast from chapter 11 in the tower of babel when they said let's go make a great name for ourselves and they crashed and burned and then abram a lowly little man god says i'm going to make a great name for you this is where my nation's going to come from not from the big and the fancy, from the meek and the mild. Not by Abram's achievements. He says here, I'm going to reread this in verse 2. He says, I will bless you and make your name great. Notice what comes right before make your name great. I will bless you. Make your name great, in other words, is a direct consequence of God blessing him. I will do this and this is the result. Why will God do it, it says. <clears throat> so that you will be a blessing. And then it says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here's what that means. God was going to act so that Abraham would be a gateway to blessing for every family on the earth. He couldn't even have kids and he had nothing to his name. And God's going to change the world with him. Through him, I should say. But here's the thing. Abraham had a few kids. But then he died. Not much of a heroic figure at the end of the day, right? He died. In fact, he didn't even see the blessing come to fruition. Although his grandson, Jacob's sons, would establish the nation of Israel, it was far from a fulfillment of the all nations promise, right? He would barely even live to see his family have some space. He certainly wouldn't see a nation come to be, and yet it would through the person of Jacob. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, these all died in faith. These would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah says these all died in faith. 
not having received the things promised, the promise we just read about, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They were looking into the distance and seeing, God's going to do it. God's going to do it, it says. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words, they say, we're just passing through. God's doing something and we're just gateways. We're just vessels. I say all that to say that Abraham wasn't the final hero. He died and yet he was holding out for another, a hero. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah, they all died in faith, looking forward to the time that God would deliver on his promise of favor, blessing given to every family in every nation. You see, their role was not to be the blessing, but by faith to trust that God would be faithful to his promise that all nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, please hear this. We're about to get into some some of the good stuff here. What is that blessing? All nations of the earth would be blessed. All families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. The blessing was not by health, wealth, and prosperity. It was not by economic flourishing. It was not by freedom from war. There's still a lot of conflict out there, right? None of these things overcome the great problem, the greatest problem that we inherit from birth. And it's not poverty, it's not unhealth. Our greatest problem from earth or from birth is sin, right? We are all born into this world, and you don't have to teach anybody in this room or anybody in, in child care, anybody in children's church, anybody anywhere. You don't have to treat, teach them to be bad people. We are, by very nature, I mean, you may have kids, if you have toddlers, they are, by very nature, manipulating you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of trouble. I'm going to hide this. I'm going to conceal this. Why is that? Because you're a terrible parent and you taught them to do that, right? No. And maybe you are. <laughs> but that's not why. That's not why. Why is that? Because we were born with a problem. It's a bad nature. It's a sin nature. Is that you don't have to teach anybody to look out for number one and to not praise number one. Because it's natural. It's what we are born with. That is our primary problem. And God saw in Abraham an opportunity to bless the earth's major problem. And it wasn't the economy. It was the problem of sin. You see, there was only one solution that could deliver on the promise of global favor, blessing, divine favor from God. And that blessing was rescue and freedom from sin, the real problem. The story of humanity cannot be told without the story of Abraham. Your story cannot be told, if you're in Christ, without the story of Abraham. The Christmas story cannot be told without the story of Abraham. The gospel story cannot be told without the promise given through Abraham. That's the promise. And yet there's a payoff. And that's the second thing that I want to show you today. The payoff is that we may be made right by faith. Made right by faith. Kind of saved some application for this part of the message. And so let's follow with me here. Go to to the book of Galatians, if you will. (coughs) Galatians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. <clears throat> when I use that term uh, made right by faith made right 
The biblical term for being made right before God is the word uh, justified. In fact, it's the same term that's used in our judicial system. Whenever a, a person who's on trial is declared as right and not wrong, it means that they're being declared as justified in the sight of the judge and the jury, right? This is the same system that we have. And if they're not justified, then they stand the opposite of that, which is guilty or condemned. And so what we see in the Bible is something similar. The biblical term for being made right before a holy God is justified. It means made, made or declared or accredited rightness, righteousness. If this is a universal need, in other words, to be made right, to be justified, which we're going to see in just a moment. Listen, this is important. If this is a universal need, that we may be made right, righteous, right, declared right before a holy God. If that's a need, then we have a universal problem. Work backwards from that, right? If the Bible says that we have a need, then it must mean that we have a problem, right? Just trying to kind of unpack that. If the Bible says we have a need, being justified, then it means we stand in what? Condemned. That's our problem. We need to be made right, and we're not made right before holy God because God is holy, he is sinless, and we are sinful. And so those things cannot mix. And the consequences of that, the wages of that, Paul would tell us, is sin, which is death, separation from God. And yet God had a long-term plan with a glorious payoff, a seed planted in Genesis that would spring life in Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 may be the chapter that you skip because it's a genealogy. This guy's the son of this guy. This guy's the son of this guy. Son of, son of, son of, son of, son of. And you may think, snooze fest. Let me move on to the next part. The book of Matthew is interesting because it's a persuasive story written for Jewish people. Now, you're not a Jewish person, I don't think, but um, it's a story. It's a gospel story. It's a narrative that's written to persuade people with a Jewish background. That's why in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, again, remember who it's written to. Jewish people, Jewish background, to persuade them to follow Jesus and trust in him as the Messiah. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the book of Matthew, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Pause for a second. Genealogies are pretty important to Jewish people, weren't they? Go read the book of First and Second Kings. There's a lot of genealogies in there because those were important to them. They needed to know why this person was worth anything. It goes on. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If you're going to believe in him, here he is, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The heir of the promise, right? Paul, later on, would come around. He was a missionary to not the Jews, but to the Gentiles. In other words, he was a missionary to the nations, to all the families of the earth. <clears throat> he wrote the promise, that the promise was for more than just Israel, it was for all nations. Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9 <clears throat> Look with me. <clears throat> 3, 7 through 9 says this. This is Paul's commentary, okay? Paul writing a commentary on what we just read in, in Genesis 12. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, what's that mean? Be made right, declared right. Justify the Gentiles by faith. Not the Jews, but also the Gentiles, the nations, okay? Foreseeing that God would make right the Gentiles, the nations by faith. It says that God, through the scriptures, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Pause for a second. That means that God was preaching the gospel to Abraham way before Jesus was born in a manger. You may think, well, the gospel is the story of Jesus, that he was born and then he died. According to Paul, the gospel was at work in Genesis chapter 12. It's awesome, isn't it? It's pretty neat. It says, he preached the gospel to, beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, favored, along with Abraham, the man of faith. What Paul's saying there is that, yeah, it's true for Jews, it's true for the nations. 
the good news, the gospel. Later on in verse 16, Galatians 3 says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his, hear this word, to his offspring. It does not say, in other words, what Paul's saying is it's a singular word. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. In other words, the promise would be delivered in one man. It says, and to your offspring. And who is it? He says, who is Christ. That's Paul's commentary. He says, the promise was made to Abraham, and he looked, looked and said, God's going to deliver on that. And it was delivered on through the person and the work of Jesus. Paul's point is to say, and not to bog you down, I know that can get kind of wordy and heady. Paul's point is to say that the gospel promise of a blessing to come through an offspring, back in Genesis chapter 12, was fulfilled in the eventual offspring of Abraham named Jesus. Remember the genealogy, son of Abraham. Now listen, you may have been here last week and you may not have been, but I'm going to tell you something we talked about last week. Last week, <clears throat> we used the word offspring in a different way. Not of Abraham, but of Eve, the woman. We looked at Genesis chapter 3 and saw there was this promise that the offspring of Eve would be harmed, but would deal the death blow to the evil one. There's this promise, another promise, that's made in Genesis chapter 3, that God would do something through the offspring of the woman to deal the death blow to death. Now, the serpent would do a harmful blow, but the son would deal a death blow. We saw this in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. It's gonna be on the screen. Look at this, please, very closely. God says, here's another promise, I will, okay, hear that. I will put enmity, conflict, between you and the woman, the serpent and the woman, and between your, listen, offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, a, a fatal, a lethal blow, and you shall bruise his heel, a painful blow, but it is not the death blow. There's an image that I've found recently, uh, was last couple years on the internet that I think depicts this well. Throw that last image up there, please. It's this image of this painful blow being dealt to, to Jesus. And this is the crucifixion you see behind me. And yet, there's something greater at work here, right? That while a painful blow is being dealt by the serpent, there is a death blow being driven right through the head of the serpent. It's a, it's a neat image that really puts into perspective what this promise is in Genesis 3.15 is that there will be a harmful blow dealt to the offspring, the seed of the woman, but there will be a death blow from that offspring to the head of the evil one. I say that to say this. Adam and Abraham were not able to pay for and defeat, as great as heroes as they were, they were not able to defeat the sin that ensnared and ensnares you and I. But there was an offspring to come, an advent of a hero, a savior, who is Christ the Lord, Emmanuel. Guys, there is simply nothing more important that we could talk about on any given Sunday than what you've heard today. We get excited about a lot of things and a lot of things in life are really important. You may have seen family recently, and that's important. You may be raising kids every day, and that's important. You may do an important job, and that's important. But I think that we give our affection and our minds to things at the end of the day that, while important, compared to this, are trivial. And we fill these chairs Sunday after Sunday, and we listen Whereas my mom would say, you heard me, you just weren't listening. 
Do you respond? Do you respond when you're here? I can make a guarantee. <clears throat> every time you're in this place, God is prompting your heart to do something. Every time. Every time you're here, God is prompting your heart to do something, to respond in some way. And today, he's asking you to respond to the gospel. Now, <laughs> that was a good start. We respond to the gospel. This is as clear as I can be, church. Whether for the first time or for the 1,000th time, without the gospel, you are left in utter despair. And the good things in life, without this, are simply distractions from the most important thing in life. And that's what we're talking about right now. And yet we come in here and we give great focus to the game, you could probably break down to me why Alabama should or should not be in the playoff. And yet you can't articulate the gospel confidently. Something's wrong about that picture. You shouldn't be a greater ambassador for your team or for your hobby than for your Lord. And I'm, I'm guilty of this. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, so to speak. I'm guilty of this too. But we need to be willing to listen to him when he's speaking to us. Every time we open this book, God speaks. He's speaking now. This week, my wife, Brooke, had a serious conversation with our son, Zion, he's four, <clears throat> about Christmas and about the gospel. They talked about Jesus' birth and death and uh, why we celebrate Christmas. <clears throat> and sort of it came to a head, and Zion's four, okay? And he's a rascal. Um, but Brooke just kind of got to his level and said, and Zion, if you trust Jesus, after you die on earth, you'll be alive in heaven. You know what Zion said? He's nodding. He says, Mommy, you know Hudson? He has a lizard at his house. That's Hudson. He's down there. He's usually down there. He's not there. He's in children's church, right, I guess. I know that's funny, but guys, some of you guys are here today, and God is prompting your heart. He's engaging in you to you in a life and death conversation, and yet your heart and your mind are just in la-la land. He's having a serious dialogue with you, and you're just... I'm not saying that make you feel bad. I'm saying that to wake you up. There's nothing more important than what we're talking about right now. You have a problem. When you come into this world, you're no different than anybody else. We're marked by the problem of sin. And yet God is, he's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast means he sticks in there whenever it gets hard. We give God reason to not love us every day. And he's steadfast in his love. We have a need. Our need is to be counted righteous. It's to be declared as right. It's to be justified, to be made right before a judge that gets the ruling right every time. Don't be in la-la land. Listen, you have a problem. And the solution is that God loved you so much 
that he, he loved the world. He said his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him would not perish. That's serious. But would have eternal life. And he's offering you that today. And listen, it's a gift. You don't have to earn that. You don't have to work for that. It's a gift by faith. That's what we see in Abraham, right? God's calling me to something. He doesn't say go earn it. He says go walk in it. Press faith, receive it. And he's calling you to the same thing today. Don't work at it. In fact, Paul gives that commentary in Romans 4, 2 through 5, where he says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not for God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was counted to him. Not, not due, not waged, not, not paid to him. Counted to him. Gift as righteousness, rightness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And what Paul's saying here is that they're not wages. They're not due. They are a gift. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, not earned, counted to him as righteousness. Listen, Abraham was made right, not by works, not by dues, but by faith in a gift that God was going to give. And no one in this room will be made right before a holy God by earning it, but only by faith in the fact that God gave a gift. That's the Christmas story. Being made right before God is not a matter of earnings. It is a gift. And that's the difference between Christianity and all the world religions, and I'm going to even say worldviews. Atheism. That's the difference. In Christ, we see that God justifies at the beginning, not the end. It's this analogy of passing the class where the grades come at the end. Did I make the good grades? Did I do all the things? Did I do all the reading? We'll see. We'll get to the end. And will it be enough? We'll see what my grade is. And we look at sometimes the, the Bible and say, is it like that? It's just not. We're not declared a passing grade at the end, but the beginning. When we trust in Jesus, God says, right. Not wait and see. Declared righteous. I saw something so sad over the weekend. I was watching Home Alone 2. It's my, one, one of my two favorite Christmas movies. The other one's Home Alone 1. <laughs> but it's when Kevin, the little kid, is having a conversation with the bird lady. I don't even know if she has a name in the movie. But he's having a conversation with her. It's a real serious conversation where he has a heart-to-heart. -heart. Same thing happens in the first movie. And she says something. You know what she says? They're actually in, they may be in a church building whenever they say, I can't remember. But they're up in this attic space. And she says, oh, Kevin is, is burying his heart. He's saying, I've done all these bad things. I'm a bad kid. And she says, I got good news. Good deeds erase bad deeds. That's what she said. Good deeds erase bad deeds. There's nothing more despairing that I could say to you today than that. What a horrible message. Because you're going to go out there and do a bunch of bad deeds. And you're going to lay your head on your pillow at the end of the day and say, I hope I did enough to erase them. You can't. Somebody else can Kevin responds to her and says, it's late. I don't know if I'll have enough time to do enough good deeds to erase all my bad ones. And she says this horrible thing. She says, it's Christmas Eve. Good deeds count extra tonight. That's just insanity. But that's the difference between this and what the world is spewing everywhere for your children to gobble up. If I've done enough good, if I've adhered to the Quran, if I've adhered to the Mosaic law, if I've left the world better than I found it, if I've just treated people right, you know what those things have in common? At the end of my life, will the work I've put in be enough to justify me? Christianity is the opposite. 
Justifying, being declared right, does not come at the end, but at the beginning. Not by earnings, but by grace as a gift. Can we just praise God that we do not have to earn it and therefore we cannot lose it? And you may not be tempted to think that way. You may be solid in your faith to say, I know it's not by works. I know that, and, and, and thank God for that. But I want to remind you of something else. This is also true of God's love. Because if you're like me, there's some hypocrisy in me that says, I've really screwed up today. I've had a hard week. I've done a lot of bad, and I just feel so unlovable. And that may be the case with your earthly relationships, it is simply not with your heavenly Father. His love is steadfast, as I said just a moment ago. You don't earn it, it was earned for you. Simple word of application, God's love. Listen, please hear this, this Christmas season and forever, for goodness sake. Wake up each morning basking in God's love, not striving for it. Can we just commit to that church? How good of news is that? Can we wake up each day basking in God's love, not seeking it? It's not the way it works. Praise God, that's not the way it works. That is the Christmas story. That's why Abraham wasn't enough of a hero, but he pointed us to a, he was a gateway, and we saw the hero through him. I said this last week, and I'll say it again today. Christmas is so much more than a manger. It's even more than the cross and empty tomb. Christmas is the cosmic bookends of man's problem, God's solution, and the eternal promise that we will be with him in glory, that we await another advent. So today, Advent is a celebration that God has kept his promise. But today is also a celebration. Advent is a celebration. You need to hear this, that God's gonna keep his promise, that he will rescue and wipe away every tear and deliver us, rescue us, and bring us home. We too are exiles waiting for the call.